This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. And yeah, we're headed to the Eastern Hemisphere. This is Malaysian Creatures and Japanese Contactees. So, we haven't hit Asia yet on the show. We've done the United States, we've had some South America, we've dabbled in Europe, and touched on Africa a bit, but East Asia is not something that we've encountered before on The Saucer Life. And fortunately, there are some sources out there for some really interesting stories, uh, courtesy of the Archives for the Unexplained in Sweden and their massive, massive archive of scanned UFO newsletters and magazines, and also the efforts of a man calling himself Isaac Coy, who has facilitated a lot of the scanning and sourcing and rights procuring of many of these things. So today, what we're going to look at are some accounts from two different publications. One, uh, the first one we're going to look at is some issues, the issues that exist, issues two through six of the Malaysian UFO Bulletin from the 1980s early 1980s and the other one is a japanese publication printed in english called ufo contactee this is the international edition which is why it's printed in english of the newsletter of the george adamski or adamski i've been told it's both pronunciations who knows what might come out of my mouth with saying adamski or adamski the george adamski get acquainted program his international network of um, Adamski fans, I guess. And these issues are from, uh, from the mid 1980s. So this is, um, contactee stuff long after the classic contactee period had passed. So this is going to be a storytelling episode rather than a, well, they're all storytelling episodes, aren't they? That's kind of, uh, that's kind of our gimmick here at the saucer life. So let's tell some stories and look at some newsletters and chuckle softly to ourselves that George Damsky's ideas did not die with him in the early 1960s. So the Malaysian UFO report was, according to its sort of masthead information page, was produced at least twice a year in a not subscription format. It's a not for subscription publication privately produced by a man named Ahmad Jamaluddin for the dissemination of UFO reports from Malaysia and the region of Southeast Asia. You could quote the whole thing, full or in part, provided credit is given to the author and the Malaysian UFO bulletin. I wonder if those permissions are or were in place for the photocopied newspaper clippings that he included in the issue. Now, this issue, this first one that we have, which is issue two, is um, about eight pages. That's it. But a lot of that is clippings, news clippings. But there are some really interesting things, such as this one with the headline, Tiny Creatures Encountered in Lumut Parak, 
We have received a report from Lumut that some tiny creatures has been sighted by the local inhabitants. They have been sighted, like all other Malaysian encounter cases, always near a school. This case occurred in June 1980 and is still under investigation. A full report will appear in future issue of the bulletin once the investigation is completed. I should note that these selections are presented with grammatical errors intact, just to give you a a feel for it. So, something that jumps out at me here. All Malaysian encounter cases have always been near a school? That sounds either very odd, or like they haven't really gotten enough encounter cases to have a big enough selection, and for some reason the ones they have are all from schools. I don't know. It seems very strange, but we will encounter some encounter cases from Malaysia, and shockingly, they are near schools. In fact, not surprisingly, there is one from a place called Bukit Murtajam from 1970 that is included in this issue, which is, again, issue number two from 1980 of the Malaysian UFO Bulletin. And this is from a town, Bukit Murtajam, in Malaysia, where some strange things were going on in August of 1970, including an encounter case on August 19th, 1970. The witness was a schoolboy from Stowell Primary School who's age 10. His name is given as, and my pronunciation is solely the fault of the Whitley County Consolidated School System, circa the 1980s and 90s. His name is K, that's an initial, K, Vigniswaran. K. Vigniswaran. So the boy, the witness, sighted a small landed UFO in the bushes outside the school fence. From it emerged five tiny entities only three inches tall. One of the tiny creatures was wearing a yellow one-piece suit and had what appeared on his head like horns. The remaining four entities wore a mundane shade of blue suit. These tiny creatures were pretty fierce when the youngster approached it in an attempt to catch one of them. One of the entities shot the witness in the leg and he fainted. The school prefects later found him in the bushes and took him back to his classroom where he later recovers. A small red dot marked the leg where he was shot. You'd think, you would think this would be a more well-known case, and maybe it is. Maybe in circles in which I do not circulate in the UFO world, not that I circulate within many circles in the UFO world, but maybe in some places, this 1970 case is is just sort of incredibly well-known. It's it's like Leveland or Roswell or something. But I'd never heard this. Now, I'd heard, you know, school child cases in in Africa and things like that. But this one with a kid getting shot, that is pretty wild stuff. And also, this newsletter is coming out 10 years later. Was there no follow-up? This summary with the kid getting shot and then getting better, except for a red mark on his leg, that's all we've got. We've got the kid's name. We know what happened. We know where it happened. But... No indication in this newsletter that there was any follow-up investigation on this. So, pretty interesting, and also interesting that they give the kid's name. That's not always the case in these investigations, especially ones where children are involved. And we're going to see a lot with children involved today as far as these sightings, including some contactee cases in Japan a little bit later. 
So that first issue that we covered, which is issue number two, was from November of 1980. Issue three comes out in October of 1981. So the two times a year publication schedule is not really holding up. And it does bill itself again as a not-for-subscription biannual publication for the dissemination of UFO reports from Malaysia and Southeast Asia to major UFO investigative bodies. So that sort of explains who this went to, who Ahmad uh, Jalahuddin was sending this to, and non-subscription. So this sounds like what it is, is this is a summary of Malaysian and Southeast Asian UFO reports that is being sent to other UFO publications or investigative groups like, at the time, APRO and MUFON and others around the world. So this is sort of a professional journal, not for the not for the scummy UFO hoi polloi who might be buying their UFO news magazines, you know, by subscription like suckers. Instead, you know, you have to run a UFO organization to get your hands on the Malaysian UFO bulletin. So let's see what's in issue number three. And there's a lot of, you know, sightings and this one had a physical effect on people. Here's a UFO wave in the Philippines. But I think sticking to um the encounter cases is going to be more entertaining. So issue two had uh, discussed encounters in Lumut and issue three here a year later, well, 11 months later, has an update. They've been able to investigate that account. So the author explains that in June 1980, there were several what he calls strange manifestations near a school in Lumut, uh, Malaysia. And there were several witnesses to the events, and most of the witnesses were school children, and the events could have been easily dismissed as hoaxes or hallucinations, he says, if not for the fact that two of the school's teaching staff also participated in the sighting. So why has the world not heard about this? From a reliable source, it is understood that the school had a meeting soon after the incidents not to disclose to anyone regarding the case. Reporters who arrived at the scene when the excitement broke loose were not allowed to interview the witnesses. It was only months later that we finally managed to locate one witness when all seemed to quiet down. From the perspective as an educator and a parent, good for that school. If they did have a meeting to shut down any talking to reporters or sharing of whatever weird thing happened, good for them. You do not need little kids being harassed by reporters, and you really don't need little kids being harassed by UFO investigators. There is really no upside for the children to that situation. But they did get a hold of a witness months and months and months later, and we are able to learn what really happened on June 18th, 1980. At about 10.30 a.m., the principal witness, a girl aged 12, and another friend, names withheld, went to the back of their school to throw some rubbish, when suddenly they caught sight of two strange miniature figures less than seven feet away in the grass. The girls got very scared, throw away the rubbish, and ran away to report to their teacher. The entities were described as very hairy, monkey-like, and measured just about two inches tall. One of the entity was dressed in white suit, with white hat and white boots. The other was all black. Both entities carried something like a pack and a long weapon on their backs. The witnesses say that the feet of the entities did not appear to touch the ground. When I first read this, the thing that jumped out to me is, one, the size, the two-inch tall creatures, which sort of tied in with the earlier sighting from issue two of of three-inch tall creatures. 
Another thing. So the girls are seven feet away, very scared. So they're freaked out. They like drop the trash that they're carrying out and they run away. But in that time between first seeing the two in, two inch tall creatures from seven feet away and freaking out and running away, they noticed that they were hairy. They were dressed in a white suit with a white hat and white boots. The other was wearing all black. They had a backpack and a long weapon on their backs and their feet did not appear to touch the ground. They picked up on all that from tiny two inch tall creatures, seven feet away in a very brief period of time. That doesn't sound incredibly likely, but I like the story. This story sort of tying into it as the, as the article continues was even a bit stranger though. I like the strangeness of these things, these strange, weird humanoid encounters. They're my favorite part of ufology right after, um, saucer swindlers and general contactees. These little weird humanoid stories are absolutely incredible. Before this incident, several hours earlier, another schoolgirl had the fright of her life while going to the toilet. She encountered a big, hairy, monkey-like creature. While this in itself is already bizarre, the creature suddenly shrunk in size to just a few inches tall, and seeing this, the witness fainted on the spot. So I'm guessing these creatures change size. That's the impression I'm getting. They were two inches tall when the girls saw them outside. They were large. <laughs> I don't know. doesn't say. Just big, hairy, monkey-like creature. Girl on the toilet wasn't clearly as good a judge of, you know, monkey creature height as the girls who were round back at the school. But this is this is very, very bizarre. And the story continues. At about 12 noon, in an effort to unreveal the mystery, two teachers and some students, all boys, went to the site and searched the area. It is claimed that they sighted the entities believed to be three or four of them moving in the area. They were all dressed in white and carry what appeared to be packs on their backs. The entities were lost behind a large rock, but some claimed they boarded a small UFO and took off. Whether there was any UFO or not at the scene is still uncertain, but about three days later, a small UFO was sighted low over the area. Please note that the awkward syntax in that selection was as written in the newsletter. So this is a very weird story, and that's the end of the story. They went, they found more creatures. This time, all of them are in white, not one of them dressed in black like the first two girls saw. And then they go behind a rock and disappear, except for some of the kids who say, no, they got into a tiny UFO and zoomed off. And, and later, a few days later, a small UFO was indeed sighted over the area. It's just, it, it, it's a story. I don't use the word unbelievable loosely. This is a very difficult to believe story, but I like it. I like the shape changing hairy ape creatures. This is just very, very interesting. And the UFO aspect to it is sort of the most disputed part of it among the witnesses. Nobody said, well, hey, no, they, they weren't wearing white. They were wearing black. No, you know, there's no argument among the witnesses in the story except for whether or not they actually got into a UFO. This is, this is just bizarre. Oh, and the detail about the feet not quite touching the ground, that seems to, you know, go away after the initial two girls encounter as well. So lots of lots of questions about what really happened on June 18th, 1980. But in a following article, 
this seems to sort of fit a pattern. The headline is 1979, Year of the Tiny UFOs. The author has taken a look at some cases, nine cases from around the world throughout 1979 and said, look, small, tiny, miniature UFOs are not uh, are not unusual. This is something that has been a thing this year. And there are sightings from Finland and Malaysia and the US and England of UFOs anywhere between nine inches and three and a half feet. I, I don't know how I need to find more details about these sightings that are presented here, but the author does say that this is the, uh, the year that, that no other single year could offer this many reports of tiny UFOs. And it's unique to label 1979 as the year of the tiny UFO. Again, that is not anything that had ever really been on my ufological radar, but I'm, I'm really glad it is now. I, I really am. I enjoy it. Let's take a look at the next issue. Issue four comes out in April of 1982. And um, the 1981 Malaysian UFO report is fascinating for the fact that the author of this 81 Malaysian UFO report article acknowledges that Reports were low as usual with only four known cases. There are not any spectacular events except for maybe one. No follow quote, no follow-up is possible since the newspaper report did not give any names of the witnesses. This is, this is the kind of low-key UFO investigation I can really get behind as if I could do this and call myself a UFO investigator, I would I absolutely would. If I could do that with a clear conscience, if I could say, yeah, I noticed one case in the paper, but I really couldn't do anything about it because I didn't know the person's name. So yeah, slow year. As we'll see going forward, uh, the creator of the Malaysian UFO bulletin, Ahmad, is he's a busy guy and there's only going to be six issues total because he's actually busy with work. So these, these issues of the bulletin get shorter and shorter and shorter and more predominated by newspaper clippings as we get to the last couple issues. But there are some interesting things in issue number four here. The most interesting thing for our purposes is an article headed abduction, the Malaysian syndrome, and it begins like this. CE4 or abduction experiences are probably the most bizarre events of the UFO phenomenon. Over the years, many strange cases have been reported from all over the world. The theories as to this mystery has always been many, and they are just as strange as the phenomenon itself. Regardless of what is behind it all, we present here some of the anomalies that have occurred in Malaysia. I'm sorry, I do not agree. I do not think anything could be more bizarre than the shape-changing, hairy, monkey-alien creature who frightened a girl into unconsciousness while she was on the toilet. I don't think you're going to top that with an abduction experience. But there's a number of cases here. And what I like is that Ahmad gives the um, gives the cases little little headlines. Um, some of them are are kind of kind of cool. Some of them could be short shortened a little bit. But here's the first one. The case of a student with 12 missing hours and 140 miles spatial displacement. Sivaraman, a student aged 17, left his home at 7 p.m. on August 5, 1970 to go to a tuition class. He woke up 12 hours later and found himself by the roadside, 140 miles away from his house in Kuala Lumpur. He was cold, 
hungry, tired, and feeling the blister on his feet. He recalled leaving his home, but from then it was all blank. He could not account for the missing hours. He has to hitchhike home. Maybe it's me, but I didn't find the UFO in this story. Of course, he didn't promise any UFOs, just missing time and 140 miles spatial displacement. But it's a strange story nonetheless, and seems actually kind of sinister, more sinister than some abduction cases anyway. Here's another one. The Case of the Missing Soldier Abdul Mutalib, a soldier aged 18, was on duty on the night of January 25, 1982. He was found missing in the morning at about 5.30 a.m. together with his M16 rifle. A search was then conducted, but to no avail. The soldier was guarding the rifle range of the recruit training center at Port Dixon when he mysteriously vanished. According to center sources, such disappearances had occurred several times in the past, but the victims usually returned after several days. They are believed to have been abducted by elemental beings known in Malaysia as Bunian people. On their return, the abductees reported that they went to a distant place and were given delicious food. When they vomited, it was found to consist of worms and grasses. Oh, wow. So many weird things about this report. The elemental beings, some sort of Jacques Vallée, Ian, Overtones or Vallée-esque. I, I didn't take French, so I don't know how to appropriately suffix that, but Vallée-like overtones with the Bunyan people. The fact that it's sort of taken as read that, oh, this has happened before. Yeah. And they were given delicious food, but then they'd been eating basically dirt and grass with worms in it. This is just very strange. And again, no explicit UFO connection unless we consider the elemental beings to be uh, to be alien in nature, well, extraterrestrial in nature, which I, I don't think is really sort of presented here, but just very, very strange. I don't it sounds like some sort of hallucinogenic experience, uh, some sort of chemically induced hallucinogenic experience. Soldier, guard duty, I don't know, mind control experimentation, maybe, I don't know. That's kind of my go-to for some of this stuff, but um, or some kind of experimentation. I don't know. Here's one that sounds like um, an Agatha Christie story, the case of the twice-missing housewife. Zainab Hussein, 40, a housewife, left her home on January 27, 1982 at about 8 a.m., and was never seen again until four days later. She is believed to have been abducted by the Bunyan people. A search party led by the village headman found her lying exhausted under a tree 200 meters from her home at 8.15 p.m. This is the second time that she had been missing. The first time that she had mysteriously vanished was on January 4, 1982. According to her daughter, her mother fell sick some eight months ago and has always been driven by a strong urge to leave the house. She was taken to see a doctor who found nothing medically wrong with her. The daughter claimed that there was something wrong with her mother, as she had difficulty sleeping even though she had taken sleeping pills. Those dang Bunyan people again. It's a weird story, and I've got to say, and I think I've said things like this before, this kind of thing freaks me out way more than some of your more standard UFO abduction experiences, because this sort of thing. This isn't, you know, people interested in UFOs have UFO experiences and relate them after being hypnotized by a UFO hypnotist or something like that. This is very 
a cliched thing to say, but this is very sort of ground level grassroots experiences, as is this case, the case of a girl's lost hours. A 16-year-old girl reported to the police that she had lost consciousness on her way to attend tuition class and woke up several hours later in a building about 500 yards away. The girl said she saw a dark figure dashing across her path at 7 p.m. and the air had a foul odor which made her lose consciousness. She woke up later and found her hands and legs tied. She struggled free and arrived home past midnight. Police are baffled by the mystery, but they have classified the case as kidnapping. The incident occurred on July 25, 1981, in Kota Baru. This, this is not... Ah, I'm backing away from the mic because I'm loud. This is not a UFO case. This is not an alien abduction. This is a teenage girl who's been kidnapped and probably assaulted. I'm not even going to draw parallels to mad gasser folk tales because this should not be in a UFO newsletter. This should be on a police blotter and people should be saying, watch out for a guy who's gassing girls and tying them up. Yeah. Okay. One more. This one sounds, this one sounds just the headline. It sounds very sort of bland. The case of the late train, but it would be the perfect title for like a Sapphire and steel story. If any of you are, are familiar with Sapphire and Steel. What? An abducted train? No one knows for sure, but mystery surrounds the late arrival of the night mail train from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur on the morning of July 25, 1981. The train left Singapore in the morning, but arrived at Jimas 30 minutes late. The reason given by railway sources was that the train had run out of fuel, but railway officials later expressed surprise at the report. They said it was highly unlikely that the train had run out of fuel because it was carrying 300 gallons of fuel when it left Singapore, and it is enough to complete the journey. I'm sorry, that's just a boring story. That the case of the train with the busted fuel gauge might be a better title for it. Issue 5 is the second to last issue of Malaysian UFO Bulletin, and it's mostly... It's almost entirely uh, newspaper clippings about supposed UFO crashes around the world. And it begins with, with this kind of fun summary of the crash saucer scene circa 1982. Oh, October 1982 is when this comes out. Actually, no. The cover says October 1982, and then in parentheses under it says published February 1983. So I don't. I don't know. But this is the introduction to this selection of stories about crashed UFOs. Crashed UFOs. Is there such an incident? This controversial aspect of the already controversial phenomenon is nothing new in ufology. Frank Scully, in his book Behind the Flying Saucer, started the ball rolling in the early 50s. After the excitement died down, all was quiet until Stringfield in the 70s began to collect bits of information from various sources relating to crash retrieval incidents. Then others follow suit, and besides abduction stories, crashed UFOs is second on the chart. Is this an American phenomenon or a grand hoax? Let's see what the Asian has to offer. Praise be, not a single mention of Roswell in that paragraph. So, it, like I said, it's, it's newspaper clippings, and uh, we're, we're almost through Malaysia, but there is a notice to readers. 
to announce, quote, the termination of the Malaysian UFO Bulletin, numbers five and six are the last issues produced. And Ahmad then explains what's been going on with the situation and why publication is stopping. We would like to thank all readers, UFO organizations for the interest in this bulletin and for the exchange publications. Due to technical reasons and the editors posting to a new place of work, we regret to inform that this bulletin will therefore cease publication. This is just evil speculation on my part, but technical reasons and a new place of work. Was Ahmad using the office photocopier to run off copies of the Malaysian UFO bulletin and he's pretty sure he won't be able to get away with it at his new job? <laughs> that's that's the impression I got. I don't know. That's I mean, rampant speculation on my part. And I really do wish that whenever UFO newsletters would cease publication, they would include the phrase, we advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very careful or something to that effect. I think that really, really adds a lot. Okay. Issue number six, the last one. This one has a regular cover date of February 83. So I have a feeling that issues five and six were sort of mailed out at the same time. There is one particular story in this issue that is sort of fun for our purposes among people seeing strange lights and fireballs over Malaysia and things like that. But actually, our interesting story did take place in the same general area as the fireball that the meteorological office said was a meteorite, which yes, you can even see those things in broad daylight. It's not a flying saucer. Headline, return of the tiny entities. Police have quashed rumors that several small men were seen near an unidentified spacecraft in a durian plantation about 20 kilometers from Surakai over the weekend. The rumor started after it was reported that residents here had seen a fireball last week. However, the fireball was later identified as a flare signal. Police said following that, several primary three pupils and several midgets with exceptionally large heads were seen in a durian plantation near the school. At least two of the pupils stuck to their story when interviewed by their teacher. Two days later, more of the beings were seen near a spacecraft to be as large as a classroom. However, police believe that the story could have been made up by the pupils because the durian plantation is out of bounds to the children and the headmaster had heard that some of them had been there. It is understood that the pupils could have been looking for the durians when they saw the little people. Again, this is a, a story that seems to me to be unconfirmed and unconfirmable school child japery. Now, Ahmad closes his final issue of Malaysian UFO Bulletin with a little sort of segment entitled The Good and the Bad UFO Reports. And, and this is just <laughs> this is just weird, but I like it. And it's kind of he's trying to sign off, but he's not sure really how to, it seems to me. But I enjoyed this. A good UFO report is the one that resists identification. A bad UFO report is the one that usually turns out to be an IFO, identified flying object. If all UFO reports were good, we will soon have a nervous breakdown worrying about it. If all UFO reports are bad, we will soon be out of business. It is the combination of the two that keeps us all going. Best wishes to all. Oh, thanks Ahmad, you too. I hope you enjoyed your post-Malaysian UFO bulletin life. And that does it for the Malaysian UFO Bulletin. If I were a more diligent researcher and or had a little more time, I would have sort of cross-referenced these issues with issues of the MUFON and APRO newsletters, if I can find them. I think I have them somewhere, or I found them once, and see 
which, if any of these stories got picked up, I don't know. I probably should do that. Maybe I'll do that in the future. Maybe that will be a future bonus episode. Maybe, yeah, maybe someday. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode, so be sure to get those to us in the comments under this episode on the website, on social media, or through email. Then, on the next regular episode in two weeks, we head to the United Kingdom to look at the Janos people. We had a nice review in issue six of Strange and Beautiful, a fun and informative zine out of Canada. For more information about Strange and Beautiful, contact David Tai at Captain Mission is my co-pilot, all one word, at hotmail.com. I was recently at the Strange Realities conference presenting about some saucer swindlers, saucer felons. You know about Reinhold Schmidt from the back catalog. You can listen to there at the website. But also, in a few weeks, you'll be getting an episode about the other half of that presentation or the person who was the subject of the other half of that present- presentation, a guy named Harold Burney who died on Venus but got better. You can check out past episodes and support the show at SaucerLife.com, and we greatly appreciate the support. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, Department A, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan, 48480. And now, let's head back east. Or west, I guess, depending on where you are. So the second publication we're going to look at is called UFO Contactee. And as I said earlier, it's the international edition so it's in English, of the newsletter of the Get Acquainted Program, or GAP, Japan. Now, the Get Acquainted Program was established by Adamski in the mid-1950s as a way to sort of proselytize his message, get his stuff out there, and for his followers, or at least those who were open to the possibility that he wasn't making everything up, to network amongst each other. The Japanese branch was established in 1961, by Hachiro Kubota. And Kubota had, who was writing for this newsletter still in the mid 1980s, 1985, when this first issue comes out, he first became acquainted with Adamski in 1953. He'd read Flying Saucers Had Landed, and they corresponded, you know, off and on for the rest of Adamski's life. And Kubota wrote the first article in this issue of UFO Contactee entitled George Adamski, The Cosmic Man. And he's a little, I don't know if gushing is the right word, but he's definitely fulsome in his praise of old George. And as before, any things that sound strange, syntax, mispronunciations, the wrong word or name being used, is as printed in this issue of UFO Contactee. After World War II, a new Tower of Babel, or nuclear weapons, were developed by major countries in an attempt to control the laws of nature. In 1952, George Adams set a dynamite at the tower as a symbol of bellicosity. Unfortunately, the tower did not collapse, and his noble mind has since been ignored because of the power's space development. Nuclear powers are bad, and George... Adams could have stopped it all, but he was stopped um, and his noble mind ignored because of the power's space development. So what does 
Kubota mean by the power's space development? Space probes reported that there were no inhabited planets in our solar system. However, we firmly believe that U.S. and Soviet may keep some important discoveries about the other planets because they are afraid the mass would seriously panic. According to Moongate by William L. Bryan, there are many suppressed findings of U.S. space program. Other excellent books on outer space tell us that American astronauts have encountered UFOs near or on the moon. For example, Don Wilson's Our Mysterious Spaceship Moon reveals many fantastic stories about the moon. So for those of you who've wondered, and there have been a few, how people could continue to believe Adamski's stories after, you know, we know that Venus is incapable of supporting the type of life forms that George encountered there in Desert Center and in other places afterwards. Well, those reports about Venus are clearly wrong. They're false. They're fake. It's fake news. It's bad science. It's an attempt to cover up the truth. Same thing with the moon bases that apparently exist. Kubota goes on to explain sightings throughout Japan of various Adamski-type flying saucers, as he called them, throughout the 1960s and 70s and into the 1980s. And he closes with some additional massive praise of George Adamski. There is every reason to firmly believe that George Adamski is one of the greatest men in the world. Above all, when it comes to philosophy, no teaching can surpass the cosmic philosophy, science of life, and telepathy. His philosophy actually brings a person to experience cosmic feelings. Moreover, there are quite a few people in GAP Japan who enunciated miracles by studying and practicing Adamski's philosophy, especially life science. We find certain similarities to the ancient oriental philosophies, but Adamski explains the laws of the universe in plain words in his books so that it is easily understood by the future cosmic man. We are sure the name of George Adamski will be handed down from generation to generation. Well, yeah, probably will, but probably not for the reasons you think or hope. Later in the newsletter, and this is what we're going to focus on in the next couple of issues that we're going to look at, we have some sightings and some Adamski-style contacts in Japan, but they're focused on children. Children are the subject. I almost said victim. Children are the subject of these encounters. And this first one is from um, Takamatsu, Japan. And the headline, Adamski-type flying saucer comes down in Takamatsu, Japan. It is often said that one of the biggest events in a child's life is the coming of the circus to town. But for a little girl named Nao Nashimoto, the coming of a large flying saucer to her town was the most wonderful event in her life. In fact, the maneuver of the UFO was the greatest show on earth. What's more, the circus performer was a handsome little boy with golden hair, possibly from another planet. Okay, so what do we know about Nao Nashimoto, this little girl who saw the handsome little boy with golden hair? So, we know that uh, her parents are, you know... It's a fairly routine family. Her her father, Norio Nishimoto, is 37. He's a company employee. And her mother, Yumiko, is 34 years old. Nothing weird here. Uh, she's an ardent supporter of George Adamski and is a member of the Get Acquainted program and has practiced Adamski's cosmic philosophy as many other Japanese members do. So nothing weird about that. They make it clear that she doesn't talk to the little girl about flying saucers. You know, no you know, no cross-contamination there. So, six in the evening, September 1st, 1984. It's a six-year-old girl. She's 
riding bikes with her friends. She sees a luminous object at the end of the road, and as she gets closer, as she takes a look at it, it's clearly, quote, the same scout ship photographed by George Adamski in Palomar Gardens in 1952 using his six-inch telescope. So it's flying in a zigzag direction over a rice field, and it hovers a few meters over the field, and then later, um, it flies away. So th- this first encounter, you know, is just a sighting. And through the portholes on the ship, she sees this little blonde boy waving through the window. There's four round windows, and through the second window on the left, she sees this little guy, and, and he's um, he's waving at her, which is which is kind of sweet. She was interviewed by a member of the Get Acquainted program Japan and describes the little boy uh, as having long hair pulled back from the face. Hair was down to his shoulders, golden hair, a round face. Um, The color of his skin, she says, the same color as I. So not the typical blonde-haired white guy who landed in California, but somebody that, you know, this little girl recognized or or identified as, as being, you know, sort of skin tone ethnically wise the same as her his eyes were but his eyes were round and big tiny little nose uh small and charming mouth and small ears it's it's a weird description she draws a cute little picture um i might throw that up on instagram or or other social media because it's 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 just a cute picture she draws a little boy in the flying saucer the summary of the gap investigator is you know based on this that his clothes were you know, gray and shiny. It was a V-necked sort of jumpsuit thing, although she couldn't see the uh, the pants. He, the investigator showed her a picture of Orthon, the drawing of Orthon from the old books, and says, "Does it look like the man in the pictures?" No, he was rather short. Um, I believe he was a boy. So, in summarizing the findings, the investigator concluded the following. To my surprise, she told me about it with a very serene state of mind for her age and had a good memory. There is no doubt she must have seen a human being from another planet. It says that her mother was in the room during the interview, and I really wish that there was a recording of this, and we could, if those of us who don't speak Japanese have a translator, to see what, if anything, the mother said. I don't know. I know they say in this article that there's you know no chance that the mother you know, her interest in Adamski's stories could have affected this or, or anything. I know they say that, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe it's my, my general skepticism of Adamski's claims, but this just seems a little bit fishy to me. We also learn from the mother that uh, this little girl can see human auras and is telepathic. And, when the saucer disappeared, quote, now recollected living in the United States of America in her previous life as a famous male pacifist involved in a movement against war. And then the mother is, quote, convinced that the visiting of the flying saucer was to give encouragement to the Get Acquainted program Japan and believes the space people are watching the activity of the Japanese GAP group, end quote. So, the article tells this story about this girl seeing the little boy through the window and then turns it into sort of a endorsement of the George Adamski Get Acquainted program in Japan by those space people. And I don't see that connection, but I can see why they would want people to think there was that connection. So issue two of UFO Contactee came out in February 
1986, and the lead story by Hachiro Kubota, again, is headlined, A Japanese Boy Who Went Aboard a Flying Saucer. And this is what we're going to end with, this story of Warabe Amanaka, who in 1926, when he was two years old, was in his bed, in his house, in a suburb of Matsuyama, and he suddenly was filled with, quote, a happy frame of mind and a warm feeling. He thought he heard someone calling out, saying, come out, my boy. He leaves the house and goes outside, and he was able to get outside because the doors and windows were, the windows were open because it was so hot. It was the summer. He goes outside, and there is a tall young man standing by the house. The stranger was a white man with golden hair and wore a long white robe as the missionaries do sometimes. With a gentle smile, he said in standard Japanese, Let me hold you, boy. Then he took a stroll with Warabe around the village for a while. After that, he walked the boy home and disappeared. While walking, the little boy was very happy because there seemed to be much human warmth in the young man. So once again, at least here initially, we have a contactee story without a flying saucer initially. So every summer, the strange tall man shows up near the boy's home, seemingly from out of nowhere, calls out via mental telepathy, and they become good friends. And they, you know, he gives him gifts as such as a velocipede, which, quote, was a great novelty then, and a small metallic box with a curious design that was carved in it with a, like a pyramid on the surface of the box. And on each side was a snake. So weird gifts. So we've got this adult man giving this young boy gifts, asking to hold him and going for walks. I, I know it's easy to read too much into this, but on the other hand, are we really reading too much into this? So every year, this man comes back. And then four years after the initial appearance, this is August 1930, Warabe sees the flying saucer, a large round object that was standing in the field. And it was 40 meters across, but that's all he remembered. And there are five men inside. They go inside the object. There's five men and they're wearing sort of ski suits that are light brown. Uh, One's got sort of a blue thing and they're getting ready to take off. They're in a flying saucer. And even though Warabe was only, I guess he would have been six at this time, he remembers a lot of detail about the preparations for taking off. All the crew were very friendly and kind and received the little boy warmly. They were ordinary persons without any eccentricity, so Warabe could make himself at home there. The crew, except for one, wore a kind of poncho-style long white dress having no sleeves. Here, the boy was also changed into a small poncho-style dress designed for a child and was given white sandals. Uncle changed his clothes specially for the unearthly flight, too. Then he seated the boy in an armchair and helped to fasten the boy's seatbelt. After having made preparations for a journey, the boy's friend said, We are going to take you wherever you want to go. This offer delighted the boy, so he answered without hesitation, I want to see elephants and whales. All right, we will go to where the elephants and whales are. Uncle was quite ready to comply with his request. This is such a six-year-old boy thing, isn't it? I mean, I think the most realistic thing about this, apart from, you know, changing from casual ski suits into long white ponchos before the saucer takes off, is if you ask a six-year-old boy, I don't know, almost anywhere in the world, probably, 
you know, where do you want to go? They're going to want to see interesting creatures, elephants and whales. So they go, they do see elephants and whales. And there's a, a, a sweet little sequence where he, the, the, the boy, uh, Warabe, is disappointed in how small the whales look. And it's because the saucer is, is quite a ways above the water. So he convinces the spacemen to take the saucer down to a lower altitude so he can see the whales more clearly. Uh, they go to Egypt. They go to, to see pyramids. They go to other parts of Africa to see elephants. Warabe is, uh, is very happy. But nobody believed him at home. Um, people at home laughed at him. They said he was a liar or just a sleepwalker. So the next year, August 1931, the saucer comes back again. And where does he want to go this time? Warabe answered, I want to fly to my elementary school. So they fly the kilometer and a half between home and the elementary school several times, which seems like kind of a letdown after elephants and whales. Now, during the visit to Egypt, one of the men, the uncle, made a sort of strange cryptic statement to Arabe right when they got back. The crew was all lined up in a row in their white ponchos. There's a drawing of this, and I I put the drawing up on um, social media this past week, so you might be able to see it. Somebody said, you know, it's the Galactic Council or something like that, saying, no, it's just the crew of this spaceship. But Uncle steps forward and on behalf of them makes a statement. He says, my boy, your father is Abraham. You are Abraham's son. You must bear it well in mind. This kid does not know who Abraham is. He's like, he would be seven at this time, six or seven. So it's a strange cryptic statement. But later on, uh, Kubota sort of gives his own interpretation of what was going on here. We presume that Abraham, in this case, is identical to the first patriarch and progenitor of the Hebrew people about 4,000 years ago. Therefore, it follows that Warabe was Isaac the only son of Abraham and his wife Sarah. Was the little boy reborn here in Japan after a great number of reincarnations? Were the young crew as well as the young man who called the boy out connected in some way with the great family described in the Old Testament? We do not know what this profound contact story means. However, we understand that Warabe Amanaka, 61, has told all there is to tell as facts, for he did not know about George Adamski's description of Venusian Orthon when interviewed in May 1985 by Tatsuo Ito, manager of the Matsuyama branch of GAP Japan. When Ito showed him a photograph of Orthon, painted by Gay Betts, Amanaka was surprised to see it, and confirmed that the man was the same man he met on the Flying Saucer. So, we've got a couple things going on here. One thing going on is is this speculation that the Flying Saucer people are the ancient Hebrews, reincarnated over and over and over again, but Kubota does acknowledge that you know we, we really don't know what this story means. And also that the person that, uh, that the Warabe met as a young boy was Orthon, was the same person that Adamski met later. Why would this be the case? Well, why not? He says, it follows that Orthon contacted Warabe and appeared again in California 22 years later. We can hardly understand why he was involved with two events, but from a different standpoint, quote, we should affirm that Warabe's claim is true because somebody else saw a UFO in 1930, the same night that Warabe took off. So this story, oh, oh, there's an editor's note. Warabe Amanaka is his pseudonym. He gave us no permission to reveal his real name and address for some reason or other. I I, I love that, that, you know, that 
Kubota just, I don't know, for some reason he didn't want us to uh, say his real name. Well, I wonder why people have been making, made fun of him as a little kid that probably stuck with him. These contact stories and the humanoid sightings and encounters that we saw in Malaysia from the Malaysian UFO newsletter earlier in the show illustrate that to a degree, elements of all kinds of American UFO culture sort of penetrated around the world, not just in the English-speaking world or the primarily English-speaking world, but also to Asia. And I should point out that especially in the Malaysian newsletter, it wasn't just humanoid encounters. There were other more prosaic sightings involved, but it was a, it was a mix. It was a blend of topics. And the George Adamski contact UFO or UFO contactee magazine from Japan that we just looked at, and we'll see more of in the future, undoubtedly, is fascinating for the depth of belief in Adamski's story and message and the promotion of his philosophy 20 years after his death, 30 years, 35 years or so after his initial sightings. Adamski has some staying power. Contacteeism has some staying power. It just doesn't have staying power in the mainstream of ufological thought for one reason or another. I think it's, I'm not going to say it's it's just as, you know, provable or just as evidence-focused as sort of lights in the sky, data gathering ufology. It's not. It's more anecdotal, far more anecdotal, but it's also far more fun and far more interesting and has more of a point than let's catalog these strange anomalies. Um, I like it. It's nice to return to this sort of classic contactee stuff, and we'll definitely be seeing more of this in the future. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll address it on our episode next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>